morning, my name's Carolina, and you're listening to 2XX FM 98.3. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Carol Oliver, the Deputy Director of the Australian Centre for Astrobiology at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Today, she's telling me all about the advancements that we have made in exploring and and uh, exploring Mars, basically. I might just start off by asking, this is why I ask everyone I interview, would you mind letting me know your name and your position? I'm a, a Deputy Director of the Australian Centre for Astrobiology at the University of New South Wales. Uh, so I guess my first question after that is, what exactly is astrobiology? Oh, right. Okay, astrobiology is the study of life elsewhere in the universe, the or- origin of life on Earth and, and life's future on Earth. And how did you become an astrobiologist? Uh, it was been a long journey, actually. I began as a, a science journalist and then I got into the university environment because I was interested in um, the way scientists communicated. And then I got into the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the uh, Western Sydney University, um, and then eventually into astrobiology. Um, it was the then director gave me a call and said he wanted to integrate in education outreach and science communication into the in, 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 into the science which was pretty novel then and uh, is still novel today and uh, so I said to him basically well uh, you know, I'm looking for intelligent life in the universe. Why would I come over there and look for dumb life? And he said, well, you don't want to work uh, with NASA. And so that's, that kind of settled it. And I have indeed worked for NASA since on things like virtual field trips. So I'm very, very closely connected to science and actually teach uh, astrobiology at third level now. Um, so how, how did the whole looking for intelligent life thing go? Can you give me any scoops? <laughs> Yeah, so so we, we, we did have an, an experiment at the Parkes Radio Telescope between 1998 and uh, 2000, and it, it was negative. It was worth, always worth doing. It's, it's an experiment that has very little chance, but if we don't do it, it'll have no chance at all. But there's a very big experiment now going on at the Parkes Radio Telescope um, that might have a, a better chance. Uh, personally, I, I, I now am convinced that the answer to do we have intelligent life in the universe is going to be a, a stepwise one. First of all, we'll learn about microbial life in our own solar system uh, and lower forms of life elsewhere. And then we'll discover things uh, about atmospheres and other planets that allow us ducks that there must be intelligence there. So we're unlikely to make contact in, say, my lifetime, for instance. I think in your lifetime, you'll we'll definitely discover whether we're alone in the universe in terms of whether life exists elsewhere beyond the Earth because we don't know of a single extraterrestrial microbe. Um, intelligence elsewhere in the universe, d- d- direct contact, I think the chances are very slim. I say, you know, it's worth, still worth doing, but very, very slim. And even if we did make contact, would they understand us and would we understand them? And then there's the problem of distance. You know, if you if you send a communication to, say, the next nearest star for us, which is um, Alpha Centauri, um, well, it'll take four and the third years to get there because nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, including communication. And then... They send, assuming there's life there, and they send a reply back. Uh, it'll take another 4.3 years just to say, "Excuse me, can you repeat that?" So that's you know almost nine years to have a very stilted kind of conversation. So when you think about our galaxy being a hundred thousand light years across instead of just like four light years to the nearest star system, 
you can imagine this we're, we're talking on multi-generational scales. I understand though that you were recently a part of a a conference at the Australian Academy of Science on Australia's role in getting to Mars? Yes, yes, uh, that's right. Um, it was a public talk um, um, in the Shine Dome. I was greatly honoured to be there. Uh, yes, yeah, so I was talking about um, uh, Australia's role in the search for life on Mars. And, and it turns out really basically that um, while there's sporadic kind of uh, research going on in other universities in, in Australia, it's really concentrated into the Australian Centre for Astrobiology because... That's what our research area is, concentrates on early life on Earth, which happens to be here in Australia, and um, searching for life on Mars. And in fact, um, we've got three of our graduates now working on the Mars 2020 rover mission. So it kind of reflects the level of research that we have in, in looking for life. There are some people on Earth who are very motivated and very uh, inspired by the idea of colonizing Mars in the near future, such as Mm. uh, Elon Musk with with, um, SpaceX, of course. How likely do you think any colonization of Mars is in the near future? Not in our lifetime. I really don't think so. It's it's a a really challenging thing. I think in our lifetime we'll have a scientific base on Mars and that might take 20, 30, 40 years to do that. And the reason I say that is you think about McMurdo base on Antarctica, and it's really almost half a century to really fully establish a base uh, in a remote location on Earth. And now we're going to go and try and do this on another planet. And in addition to the problems at McMurdo, we now have to take an entire ecosystem with us, thinking about all our food and all of our water uh, and how we exist on Mars. And we have problems with um, the gravity being a third of ours. We have problems with the um, uh, growing stuff in the Martian soil at the moment. There's a, a salt in it which would make the food poisonous, although we know how to bioremediate that. But the most critical thing of all is the radiation. Here on Earth, we get um, a lot of the radiation is, is, is cut off uh, by our ionosphere. But um, on Mars, there isn't an ionosphere. There's no magnetic field um, to protect the planet either. So all of that radiation hits the ground. And that's one of the things that we have learned recently from Curiosity, which is a car-sized rover in currently in Gale Crater on Mars, um, that the radiation level is very, very high. Um, so long journey to Mars, this long journey back and a period on Mars, which is at the moment is far in excess of anything that we've experienced even by going to the space station. So some very serious difficulties in sending human biology to Mars. I had a question and I got distracted by what you were saying. And I had a look at your bio, obviously, and I said you are the co-founder, co-creator of the Mars Lab, which is a teaching initiative. Yes. Um, Would you mind going into a bit of detail about that? Sure, absolutely. Um, and the Mars Lab is located at the uh, Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences in Sydney. Uh, it's been the subject of two large grants, beginning with the Australian Space Research Program uh, grant in 2010, 10-11, and uh, that allowed us to build this 140-square-metre Mars yard and an experimental Mars rover. But uh, in Sydney, could go to it, but it couldn't go anywhere else because... 
we didn't have the capacity uh, to um, to send it onto onto the internet. We, the, the museum's capacity was just not at the level of, say, a museum's capacity to do that. So we got a second grant, which was related to the MBN, that allowed us to do that. And so now it's uh, international as well as obviously national. So we have Australian schools and we have schools from all over the world um, participating in that project. And the idea is is to get kids to run their own missions and, and use our experimental Mars rovers, and we've now got three of them, um, to plan and carry out a mission in the Mars yard looking for the circumstances for life on Mars. And we have the the yard embedded with information which they can use a spectrometer um, uh, on and, and, and deduct some information from that. And the point being really basically is to get them to think like a scientist. And we've really, really had some very sophisticated results from that. It's very successful and it's self-supporting. I can tell you, I can give you a couple of cases if you would like to, to hear those. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, so in one case, we had a group of um, 13 um, high school students, years 10 and 11, and they came as part of the Mars Lab. They came to the powerhouse, or uh, that, that's the that are part of the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. They came to the powerhouse to find and research uh, a question about Mars, and then we joined with Arizona State University in their uh, student, uh, Mars Student Imaging Project. And they had this particular question about craters on Mars and how big a crater needed to be in order to predict there would be a hot spring, ancient hot spring system in that crater. And they carried that out so successfully that when they eventually got their picture back from the famous camera, it was of a of first off crater and just months beforehand, uh, a team of Italian researchers had identified the material, the material in that in that crater as an ancient hydrothermal system. So, so they predicted it and they got it exactly right. They presented it at a conference. They had they got that into the refereed conference proceedings, which means those students had a research paper before going to university. And that's incredible because most university students don't get that until they've done their degree at university. So that was one thing. Another thing is that we've regularly um, had uh, focus groups with uh, who have participated in the project. And what we find is they spontaneously uh, talk about how tenuous science is, that it's, that it's open-ended, that there are no rights and wrongs, they get the uncertainty in science, and they understand that that cookbook method that they learn at school of a scientific method is not the way it works. It's got the elements of how we do science, but it's not the way it works. It's more like a cookery lesson when they do it that way. Uh, that's really pleasing because I have students at third year in university who don't don't understand those elements. And clearly these students have got it through doing this project. Sorry, what do you mean by a corkboard method? A cookbook. cookbook. Oh, cookbook. Okay, I, th- I, yes. I heard corkboard and I was thinking, it is, it is. that doesn't make yes. any sense. Yes. No, a cookbook method. So, yes. <laughs> Put in two parts maths to one part yeah, science yeah, yeah, and you get a breakthrough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Basically, a teacher will 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 um, uh, give students a, a hands-on experiment to do. They'll be given the tools to do that with. They'll be told what they've got to do, and they step through that. Um, they get the result that they're supposed to get. That's not how science is done. I wanted to ask as well. Uh, when you were talking about some of the hurdles in colonizing Mars with the lower gravity, the radiation, the food, I'm not going to lie. My brain went to uh, the pop culture novel, The Martian. Do yeah. you think that uh, portrayals of Mars like that in pop culture are an advantage or a disadvantage in science and progressing the study of science and possibly colonizing Mars? 
Oh, I, I, absolutely. I think it, it, it's it's really helpful. Andy Weir wrote a brilliant book, um, and much of what he wrote was was very realistic. I mean, he didn't know about the perchlorates in the soil, the salt that makes soil poisonous. So he didn't know about that. There's a little bit of po- artistic license in there with the dust storms. They are just not that severe, severe enough to do what was done in the, the Martian. So um, although they do whip along at quite, quite a speed, the air is very thin, so it wouldn't have those effects. But apart from that, it was pretty realistic and, and, and I thought they did a really, really good job um, in the film and I thought the author did a brilliant job uh, in the in the writing of the book. It was, it was really good. And now it's time for a little bit of music and today it is Starman by David Bowie. Stop and waiting in the sky He'd like to come and 
And that was Starman by David Bowie. You're listening to 2XXFM 98.3, Canberra's local current affairs program for curious minds. Today we're talking with Dr. Carol Oliver all about Mars exploration and astrobiology. So it's kind of more uh, like an inspiration, even if it's not necessarily 100% scientifically accurate, it's a good source of inspiration for people? Yeah, it's visionary and it's inspirational. And I would say that about Elon Musk's work, I would say that same. It's visionary and inspirational and very important because of that. Um, and I'm sure Elon Musk said it that way, is spurring on us to think about going to Mars. Um, it's almost like a competition in a way without the competition being there because we don't have the driver we had to go to Mars. There's no cold war uh, between America and uh, and the Russians, uh, not an obvious one anyway, that would uh, that, that would drive that, that, that kind of competitive uh, atmosphere. And, 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 and it's the wrong one. That, that kind of one is the wrong one. This the one that Elon Elon Musk is generating uh, of, of, of innovation, of vision and inspiration is the one we really need. Australia is actually advancing in, in a couple of other ways with space exploration and uh, research, such as I believe the, the proposed name for the new Australian version of NASA is Australian something. What It spells out, oh, it spells like ass or something? Or yes, I, I, I hope somebody gets get that before uh, that happens. We just needed to call... All it needs to be called is the Australian Space Agency. No fancy name. Australian Space Agency. That's Um, And there, my hometown, Canberra, is uh, apparently getting its own space center and and space research do you how important do you think australia is in the future of space exploration i think it's a different question in in a sense in um um, in that it's important for australia to get involved in space exploration in the way it's the government has now decided we need to be part of the global conversation it's a huge industry hundreds of billions of dollars and we, we need to be in it but we also need to be in it because uh, when you look uh, at the division of the globe and, and you include Antarctica, a bit of space above our heads is quite significant compared to the rest of the world. Uh, it's, it's, it's in comparison to America or the Soviet Union, for example. Um, so we need to have a voice and we can't have a voice unless we're in that global conversation and we can't have a global conversation unless we have a space agency. And that was made clear at the International um, Academy of um, Astronautics, sorry, the International Congress, uh, in, uh, International Astronautical Congress, sorry, in, in uh, Adelaide in September, where we had the, the, the heads of space agencies um, discussing, is it business before science or science before business? And there was an empty chair, and it was Australia, because Australia was didn't have a space agency, but Russia was there, the Americans were there, the Canadians were there, um, Chinese were there, you know, uh, Europeans were there. It just, it was just very standout. Um, and so we do need to be part of that global conversation. But I'm very, very glad now that both sides of the government have, both, uh, both parties have recognised that we really must be part of that conversation. Where would you, in into, into the future for space exploration, where would you like to see Australia uh, in in 10 years beyond forming a their own version of our own version of NASA? Well, I, I, I'm not sure it, it will be our own version of NASA. I think it will be unique to Australia and to Australian needs. 
Um, I think that um, we'll be, in 10 years, uh, we will have a much better hold of the kinds of satellite technology that we need um, for our country in uh, remote, um, remote sensing and in communication uh, and all the other things that we need that drive our lives today. Even if you go to the ATM or to get money out, you're using space exploration to do that. So um, the, the, I think that at the first level, We'll be doing that, and I think that's the most important thing. I've heard that they don't want to get into uh, deep space exploration, but I think it's going to happen anyway. There's a story um, today about um, the United Arab uh, Arab Republic or uh, Emirates, sorry, United Arab Emirates, wanting to uh, work with Australia on on a Mars habitat. Now, whether that happens or not is another matter, but that's the point. Um, We can actually take part in deep space exploration, which is the visionary part as far as STEM is concerned, um, uh, science, technology, engineering, and maths inspiration. And so I think that um, uh, it will happen. It will happen in, in a way that's going to be working with others to do that. We're not going to be sending astronauts. Uh, we're not going to be launching anything into deep space, but we can certainly participate in the programs of others. If there's someone who's listening to this show and they decide that they, they want to be a micro a astrobiologist or an astronaut or be involved in any way in the future of space exploration, how would you advise they go about doing that? Okay, so I think... So the very first thing is to say, uh, to point out that the, the, the three students that we have at NASA, they're three ordinary Australians who had an extraordinary dream. And what you're talking about here is what would be considered an extraordinary dream. The only thing that stands between anyone uh, undertaking that extraordinary dream and actually realizing it is hard work. You go to university, you take the right subjects, you get involved in the research, go in the direction that interests you, whether it's in science or engineering or technology, uh, and then you make it happen. And it does happen. And we've clearly done that even without a space agency. It, it doesn't It doesn't depend on jobs if you're in a Australia, although I think it would generate jobs. I think there's nothing wrong with students graduating and going overseas and then coming home. The diaspora would be very, very good for us, um, as indeed we find that in astronomy as well. On the note of uh, people studying science and getting involved with, uh, say, for instance, your um, Mars Lab initiative, have you seen any sort of uh, changes or uptick in um, women being interested in those areas? That's really hard to measure over a long period of time. What you're asking me basically is if we do one thing here, does it result in something else, something happening over there? But the interesting thing is when I look around the Australian Centre for Astrobiology, I would say it's two-thirds female, which is really interesting. Female scientists, when mostly, when you look at other things like, for example, physics, it's very, very male-oriented. So I think that's changing. Definitely. I think that that, that, that that women are finding their voice in this area and particularly in this idea of having having that extraordinary dream. I might just wrap this up in a minute, but I'll uh, just ask you probably two more questions. And that's yeah. if you could change anything about uh, the public concept of space exploration or astrobiology or anything to do with, with Mars, what would it be and why? I could change anything if, about public perceptions yes. about those. But, okay, if, if, if in public perceptions of looking for life on Mars, I would love the able to generate the, the, the pride among um, Australians that our research here in Australia 
is really, really important to looking for life on Mars. We have the best earliest evidence of life on Earth. And if you're going to go to Mars, you've got to know what it looks like. And you've got to know what the chemical traces are because you cannot rely on organics when you're looking at past life on Mars that's three and a half billion years old. You've got to rely on the chemical evidence and the, the um, environmental circumstances and what we've learned about um, early life on Earth. That's the only way to do it. So I would love Australians to really recognise what a rich tapestry we already have in looking for um, life on Mars. And uh, other students can be part of that by, by, by undertaking degrees in astrobiology. So that's one thing. And the space side, what, would I, what was the one thing that I would want Australians to realise about space? I think the one thing I would uh, want them to realise is that space is important to us right now. And it's going to be even more important to us in the future. We are going. We have been living in the space age since the 1957, but it's right now where it's become very much more important as to how our lives are run by uh, near space exploration as well as deep space exploration. And uh, my final question is actually more of a of an invitation. Before I wrap this up, is there anything else that you'd like to to add to anything you've said or? A question you were hoping I was asking, but I would ask, but didn't. Okay, so you, you, one thing that you um, probably didn't ask is about um, what, what have we discovered on Mars so far, and it's really exciting. Um, we've, we've learned that it's got the right chemistry to provide the circumstances for life. We've got huge evidence of water on, 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 on Mars in um, three and a half billion years ago, and it will probably have been benign enough to drink, at least in Gale Crater. We found organic carbon, which is necessary to build life on it's a, it's a it's a chain in which life builds so it's really really key so we found that on mars we found bioavailable nitrogen which again is really important because it's the type of nitrogen that's usable uh, by life we found active methane on mars um, which has many explanations but one of the most alluring is the possible presence of life on mars today albeit will be under the surface of Mars, um, but it may well be there today. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that, I think that's, that's important for people to know that we're taking this very stepwise approach to looking for life on Mars because it's the right way to do it. And what, why wouldn't we go straight for life? Well, we tried that with the Viking landers in 1976, went straight for looking for biology without all those things, those knowing about the circumstances and the environmental stuff all of that, and it turned out the four experiments on each of the landers returned confusing results. No one believed that those two landers actually discovered life on Mars. And that shut down the Mars program. It shut down Mars exploration for 20 years. So it's really important for us to take this very stepwise approach uh, to looking for life on Mars. That's amazing. I didn't realize that we'd uh, made, I say we, I mean other people have made such advances in, in understanding Mars. Yes, yes. We actually know more about Mars than we do about the bottom of our oceans here on Earth. That's crazy. I know. <laughs> well, um, I might just wrap this up and, and let you get back to uh, to your evening, but thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed today. Okay, Carolina. I hope that helps. Yeah, it was perfect. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye.
And that concludes our discussion with Dr. Carol Oliver. Join us each morning, 8.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. on 2XX 98.3. You can follow us on social media on Twitter or Facebook or look, check out all of our shows on SoundCloud. Community Radio needs your support, so consider becoming a subscriber. Other than that, I hope you have a great morning.